0: Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is Manette Norman. Minette is a leadership consultant from the United States, and she is the co-author of a new book called The Psychological Safety Playbook. Now, many of you would be aware that psychological safety is one of the cornerstones of the work that we do here at Cut Through Coaching. You might also be aware that Amy Edmondson, who's the world's leading authority on psychological safety, was a guest on the podcast back on episode 20. What I particularly like about Minette's work is the way she bridges the gap between the research and the practical application of techniques to not only assess psychological safety, but actually improve it. Minette, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me and inviting me here, Dan.
1: Well, we've got one half of the dynamic duo here, um, in in you, Minette. The other half of the dynamic duo that's put this book together is Carolyn Helbig. She's in Germany, you're in America. I'm wondering how it is that two um, consultants like yourself would, would cross paths and decide to write a book together.
0: Yeah, it's the question that you have to ask because, uh, yeah, Caroline's sleeping right now while we're recording this, so she can't be here. But yes, we met in an online class. So it was in early 2021, and we both signed up for a class to learn how to do psychological safety assessments based on the work of Amy Edmondson from Harvard. We'd been following her work in our own work, and we signed up for this class, we met in the class, and Caroline and I were in a little cohort in the class together. And we sort of hit it off just in our interactions. And then what happened was I was on a podcast that one of the other students hosted on leadership. And Carlene tuned into the podcast and she was listening. And as I was talking about my views on leadership, she said, I was writing down so many notes. I couldn't cook dinner. I was trying to cook dinner. And I just realized that you and I are very much aligned. And one of the things she heard me say on the podcast was that there's lots of academic research about psychological safety. We kind of all know why it's important, but there's very little practical information for people who want to dive in and really improve things in their workplace. So she heard me say that on the podcast. And then she followed up with an email to me. And the email subject line was "Crazy Idea." And she said, you know, Minette, I loved what you said. We're really aligned. And I heard you say there's very little practical information. What if you and I collaborated and wrote something? And the original idea was that it would just be for our clients because, you know, our clients were looking for that kind of information. And then it grew and grew. And we eventually hooked up with Page Two, our publisher, and we ended up publishing the playbook. So, it, so you know, when Caroline first wrote to me, she said, like, what if we wrote a little pamphlet? And then it turned into this book. So that's the short version of how we met and came together.
1: Which, which obviously, I mean, reading between all those lines, obviously, it was during the pandemic. It was. Um, so my immediate question is: Have you actually ever met in person? Have you got? Have you got to that point?
0: we have not that is the amazing thing like we are very much a story of this the what's possible in the virtual world in terms of connection and really doing creative work together and now i feel very close to her even though we've never met but we're very excited because in july we're going to be keynoting together at an event in lisbon and so that's when we're going to meet for the first time this summer
1: that's so cool because One of the things which, again, immediately springs out is that so many people have spoken about, I don't know, like the way perhaps trust has dropped off in organisations because of the virtual world or or how hard it is to establish relationships over a screen. And And yet it seems in this instance, your experience runs counter to that because I'm assuming, and I'd love to explore this with you, the psychological safety required between the two of you to come together to write a book about psychological safety, you know, putting your ideas out there, put testing your your, your the waters, so to speak. That in its essence is, you know, psychological safety at place. So I'm really curious to hear just you know your experience of of, of doing that from a you know a pamphlet, which you know maybe relatively low stakes, to saying actually no, we're going to put something out there to the world. You know, proper proper publishing stuff. You know, I'm really interested in. How that how that played out for you? Again, as I said, against a lot. You know, I hear I hear it quite regularly. Oh, it's really hard on screen. It's much better face to face, Dan. What's What's your take on all
0: that? So, I love to push back on that for many reasons, not just mine and Caroline's experience, but I I will talk about that. But I've also just seen how actually the virtual world gives us things that we didn't have when we were face to face. So, let's come back to that. And I'll first tell you how we actually established this really high level of psychological safety and trust. And I think, you know, part of it is that we treated this whole thing like this big what if, you know, this idea of what if what if we experiment what if we try something and i think that gave us that initial low stakes of there's nothing super scary about what we're doing we're just experimenting we're just playing around and we, one of the best things was Carleen created an online whiteboard using that Miro tool. That mm-hmm. There are lots of them, but Miro is one of them. So she basically set up a whiteboard called A Crazy Idea. And we started our first thing is we set up a Zoom call and we talked a little bit. And then she opened up this Miro board and she said, why don't we just like quietly write down our ideas about what might go into such a thing and put them up on the board? And that's how it all started. It was this very much like, I don't have anything connected like to my ego here. This is just, what if we tried this? And it was really interesting because never having met in person, we still managed to establish like we laugh a lot, we disagree a lot, all the things that you talk about, like what is possible when you have psychological safety that just came over weeks and months of working together and really vulnerably just saying i'm going to try writing a draft. That was one of the first things we did. We kind of outlined what we thought the material might be. We came up with sort of a structure and then we said, what if i go write one topic and you go write one topic and next week we will read each other's drafts. Now that's a big that's a big moment of trust, you know, to write something and then show it to the other person and even from that moment, I mean, there's something I just love about working with Caroline. She's very, very positive. And she'll never, ever make you feel bad about anything, even if she disagrees or dislikes something. And I try to do that with her as well. Like, this is what I love. This is what I think we could do differently. And, you know, that yes, and kind of attitude that we brought to everything. And it just, I think part of it was also that we, you know how we call it a playbook, and we were very deliberate about that, is we said we want to inject some levity into what seems like a very, very heavy topic. I mean, psychological safety. It sounds heavy. It sounds academic. It sounds geeky. And we wanted to inject some fun. And even in our own work, let's have fun with this. Let's experiment. Let's play. Let's see what sticks. Let's throw out what doesn't. And that's how we just kept going. And it's, it's interesting that we started this in like June of 2021. So we're coming up on two years since we've been working together. We had a call this morning she'd been on two weeks spring break. We hadn't seen each other on Zoom for two weeks. And it's like, I missed you, my old friend. You know, we just have really established such a strong connection and it's all been done virtually. And I do not actually think that we're the only people doing this kind of work virtually. I think it's truly possible. And you just have to use the tools that are available to you and be open-minded about time zones and what works and, and that sort of thing. But we've just really made it work. And I think we, you know, to me, it gives hope that this, this is This is possible beyond two people working on a book. This is possible in the workplace. And you know, one of the things I've seen is, especially with global teams where people are just—they've—they already pre-pandemic were distributed teams. There was this sort of experience. I certainly knew this when I was in the tech world. Is that the people who were in the office together had a better experience than those who were in. In remote offices, who were working virtually, and it was a little bit this us and them mentality, and almost like a, a class system or a caste system. And I think what the virtual world does is says like we are all virtual, right? I mean, and we can we can make this as good as we want it to be for everybody. And that's that's what I think the opportunities are that we can pick up on.
1: You mentioned before, you know, you feel that the the the, the technology affords us things that perhaps face to face doesn't. I mean, over and above the obvious of, you know, cutting down on travel time and, and, and things like that. What, what, are, what are other things you feel we benefit from by engaging, you know, with, virtually. with the technology? Yeah, virtually, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, a few things come to mind immediately. So one is, even on something like Zoom or any of the online platforms now, one of the things that you have available to everybody is closed captioning. And you know, closed captioning is actually such a tool for inclusion in many ways. It's not just for people who are deaf or hard of hearing, but what I have found is that people, for example, for whom English is a second language, they are much more comfortable being able to read the subtitles and the captions as we're speaking. For people who are not auditory processors, reading is more helpful. So already you've just got a built-in tool in an online application that isn't available to you in, in person. And then the other thing that I've noticed is that in meetings, for example, there's usually, there are usually the dominant people who do a lot of the talking and the quiet people who just sit back and have brilliant things to say but don't either find, a, find an opening or just aren't comfortable. What I've seen with online tools and virtual tools is that people who are quiet are usually willing to put something in the chat even if they decide not to unmute themselves. So often you, you hear from people you wouldn't hear from. And then these tools, for example, like online whiteboarding, really give you the opportunity to gather a lot of ideas in a very efficient way, and everyone participates. And my experience, both in the corporate world and working with clients, is that that doesn't happen as much in person unless you're really deliberate in saying we're going to go around the room and hear from everybody. So I think there are just things built into online and virtual applications that give us a little bit of a leg up in terms of hearing all the voices and really being more inclusive to everybody.
1: Yeah, and, and that actually mirrors um, some of the experiences we've had here with, with with our work is, you know, we thought, oh my word, how are we going to How are we going to do our work? (laughs) Now we can't go to places, and it is. I'm not saying it was universally positive in every experience, but we were surprised how positive it was. We were surprised, like you say, at the like what you just spoke there about in terms of the quieter members of the group. Yeah, that being able to utilize other functions to engage. Um, Yeah, we 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 really were. I would say we were surprised in the first instance, and now it seems like common sense now, but it it wasn't common in the middle of 2020. Where, you no, know, we're we were like, figuring oh, we it gonna- all out.
0: How do yeah. we do breakout rooms? Like all these things we were learning how to do, right? And you know, one of the other things that I know Caroline uses and I use, we use different tools, but they're basically the same thing. Mentimeter and Slido. You know, those tools where you can do, you can create word clouds, you can ask questions, and everyone can participate just by typing something online. And it's kind of amazing like what the collective intelligence or even just getting a pulse of the room that if you honestly, if you asked in an in-person meeting, like, how are you all feeling? Or what do you feel like when you don't have psychological safety? People are probably going to be pretty hesitant to speak up. But everyone's willing to type something in on a Slido or a Mentimeter type of thing.
1: Well, that, that's the irony, isn't it? That we often reflect on, you know, in order to talk about psychological safety, we kind of need a level of psychological <laughs> safety. and, and, and <laughs> you get stuck in this bit of a loop especially when someone said to you hey can you come in because we've got really low levels of site safety oh gosh okay perfect storm
0: oh and I've been (laughs) in those I have so been in those where you know the elephant in the room is not being talked about and it's really hard to tease that out sometimes and I unfortunately what I think a lot of people think is a shortcut is you go into a room and you say this is a safe space it's okay. Say anything, and that doesn't—that's not going to do it, right? That's not enough to actually make people feel that it is a safe environment.
1: Which leads us nicely to, I think, um, the, the the rationale for, and then of course the the, the actual, I guess, the substance in, in in your book that you and Carolyn have, have, have put together for us. So, psychological safety—the sorry—the psychological safety playbook. Um, talk to us a little bit about. Um, yeah bridging that gap between academia as you say there's a lot there is a lot out there obviously most notably um amy amy edmondson's work who um listeners may remember was on in episode 20 of our um of our podcast but maybe if we just start for those that haven't um, been caught up with that episode the definition of psychological safety might be useful at this point and then how we go from bridging what we know and and i think what you were talking about there that certification and getting you know we can assess it We can see whether it's there or not, but then how do we bridge the gap? How do we create more of it? So the definition that you base your work around um, would be?
0: Well, for us, psychological safety is a belief and a feeling that in a group setting, it's a place where you can ask a question. You can even make a mistake. You can dissent. You can challenge the status quo. You can be yourself and you don't fear being excluded or embarrassed, or humiliated. And the, the, you know it's very close to all the things that Amy Edmondson and other academics have said, and I think she uses the term a belief, and often that it's a safe place for interpersonal risk-taking. And we just try to be more explicit about some of the ways you can show up, like asking questions and being yourself, and also that it is not just a belief, but it's a feeling. And I think we really like, Caroline and I like to ground it in this deeply human experience that we all need and crave
1: that's so interesting because my colleague and I were talking about that very um the, the, the that word the belief is it a because yeah, and we didn't go with feeling necessarily I think we were tossing up between believing and knowing mm-hmm. you know really playing mm-hmm. some word semantic games around the difference between do I believe I can do this or do I know I can do this but I like what you so when you talk about the feeling are you talking about that uh, the threat response I, like is that what you're talking about when you talk about a feeling how d- could you draw that out a little bit for me
0: yeah yeah and that's an interesting question I probably haven't even thought it through in terms of feeling to me is it is in your gut mm-hmm. so probably it is like I know that I am not threatened in this state as opposed to I am having the fight flight freeze response mm-hmm. and I'm not going to speak up um, I think it is this feeling really of I mean what I mean by feeling is that Probably, you know, so in the sense of believing or knowing, you know, and you instinctively sense that it's okay for me to ask this question now, as opposed to like, I definitely have been in those situations where where the opposite is true. You're sitting around a table, you know, the leader of the team has a very strong point of view and wants some feedback, you know, any feedback here. And you're just sitting there and the, the feeling of like weighing, do I dare? Do I not? Is it worth it? Is it worth saying I disagree? Is it worth saying I have a different point of view, knowing that everyone in the room is going to roll their eyeballs or they're just going to look at you like, "Oh, you again, the troublemaker"? And so that's this thing you you do sense it. You can sense. Mm. So that's to me, I guess, what that feeling is.
1: And so, obviously, as you you know, you've done you've done the certifications, but there's ways of assessing this. There's surveys that we can do, and then what I'm guessing what I'm guessing was and please feel free to correct me but what I'm guessing is as a result of of your reading the academics doing this you kind of get yourself to the edge of this cliff and then you go "Ah, now what (laughs) you know and it's so we we know what it is we know what it isn't and we know how to assess whether we've got it or not but then what is that, would I be right in saying that that was kind of your... Those question? were
0: our exact feelings and our exact words. Like now, in fact, I was kind of frustrated in this class thinking that we were going to learn how to do the assessments. And then we were going to really get to interventions. Mm. And instead, what we learned was to how to do the assessments and how to have a really good debrief conversation. And there's a lot of value in that. But then it stopped right there. And that's where Caroline and I were like, there's more here. We have to explore, like, then what? What do you do? And I have held a couple of these uh, assessments. I've done a couple of them and the debriefs. And in some ways, it's almost like it doesn't do any good to just stop there. Because now you know, now what are you going to do about it? And it's like, what are the actions we're going to take to increase psychological safety every day? And the other thing that's very interesting when you do run one of these assessments is, let's say you've got a team of 10 people. There may be sort of an average that you can say this is the mean of where we are as a team, but you'll find outliers. You'll find people in the team who say, 100%, I feel completely psychologically safe. And there'll be those who are at the very bottom, like, I don't dare open my mouth. And you get these and you know, these amazing disparities in score. So then what do you do with that? Because everyone in a team is having a different experience.
1: We, we do a similar thing where what we try and do is we try and get people to imagine what's it you know let's say one to five you know Mm -hmm. what's it like to be a two you know what's it like and and because if I'm a five like you know obviously I'm by five and say no I feel super safe here I can share my ideas I have no understanding of what it's like to be a two perhaps and I'm you know and so I'm curious about how you bring the group together which I think would be a nice metaphor there I'm I'm conceptualizing them on this line here you know how we bring them together how do we bridge that gap what take me into your world manette you you've, you've done the assessment you've, you've you've given the debrief and they're looking at you and going yep we want something what, what how do you start particularly and I think I'm particularly interested in this space where it's obvious that there isn't a level of psych safety that I'll use the word ideal or, or what we're striving for mm-hmm. that's not there for whatever reason what's your first play <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, it's very funny you say that because if we, you can pick any of the plays, you know, our, our book is divided into plays and moves, you know that already. But I think one of the, it is the first move in the book that we say is a powerful question is what am I missing? so I, you know, we were, Carolina and I were just talking about it. We recommend that in the book. We say, if you're a leader of a team, one of the best ways to start getting people to speak up is to really invite them by saying, you know, here's my point of view, but what am I missing? I really believe you all know things that I don't know. So in a team setting, I think a very interesting question to ask is not what am I missing, but what are we missing? And, you know, the question is, what are we missing in not understanding what your experience is versus mine, or what are we missing as a team by not working on psychological safety? And what I like to do with teams is, even after doing an assessment, is looking at what would be possible, what would be possible if we increase the level of psychological safety for everybody in the team. Because then it starts to, that question alone, starts to expose what's happening now for some of the people. So even if someone doesn't feel particularly safe in that assessment, if you start to ask the question, what would be possible if we got better at this? Then people might start to volunteer uh, we, we would be more innovative. We would be able to talk about failures more openly. You would start to hear, it would tease out some of the things that are not happening right now. So I think that that what would be possible uh, is a good question. I also like to ask, what am I already doing today to increase psychological safety? And the second corollary question is, what am I inadvertently doing that may be decreasing psychological safety for my colleagues and team members. And I always say inadvertently because I don't think people are deliberately trying to shut people down, but that's usually unconscious behavior, automatic behavior, just oblivious behavior. So those three questions, what would be possible? What am I already doing? Is increasing psychological safety and what am I inadvertently doing that may be damaging it? I think are great openings for a team that wants to explore the next phase. And then, of course, you know, Caroline and I like to dive into some of the suggestions from the book and we can pick any. We usually, what we usually do is because we have five major plays, we pick one from each play, one move from each play as a way of like, here's, a, here's a, an easy way in. I'll give you five things to start with. Pick one to try out. Because what we worry, what we really don't want to do is, and that's why we made the book very modular, is we don't want to overwhelm people. And make them feel that I'm doing everything wrong and I need to change every aspect of my behavior because you know what will happen is paralysis and no change will happen. So instead we say, like, here are five things or three things, whatever, depending on how much time we have. Pick one. See how it works. Experiment with it. And then see, you know, get some feedback and then try something different. So the idea is just to try something new as a way to experiment, play, and see what, what makes a difference
1: one of one of my hopes is that you know when people listen to this podcast or any of our episodes is that they they that one they're sparked with the you know curiosity and their interest in the area but then there's also um you know, something they could go and do with it you know so a bit like with, uh, squaring that tension we we're speaking about before right moving beyond oh yeah that we need to do that that here's something we we could do so i wonder if we could just circle back to those three questions and just um just draw them out just a fraction more because what i'm th- and maybe just do them in turn because what I'm hearing when you say you know what would be possible if we could build psych safety that that really it's kind of like a depersonalization of it in 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 some ways rather than me saying why don't you feel psychologically safe or you know let's talk about you and how you show up it's it it just and again I'm, I'm really framing this in in an in an arena where perhaps psych safety isn't where it is, so we have to tread that path. We want to be deliberate, but we also want to be mindful that it's hard to talk about psych safety without psych safety. So, and and am I right in saying that that also creates quite a compelling vision because it's kind of like it's a means to the end. It's not psych safety for the sake of psych safety.
0: That's exactly right. And you know, Amy Edmondson is the first to say that that's not the end. Goal. The goal is psych safety to innovate, to perform, to have highly engaged teams, to excel, to enjoy work, et cetera. Uh, And so, yes, I think that's why that question is so powerful. And I've used it with teams where we set up a a quiet session where I asked that question and people wrote down their ideas. And then they were willing to share them, you know, like putting them on a Post-it and sharing them on a whiteboard or a virtual whiteboard. And it is pretty powerful to see what people come up with because I didn't give them a lot of background before. I just gave them, as we said, like definition and some, a little bit of background just so they knew, had some vocabulary, but what would be possible? And then people start to imagine a much better workplace and a much better world. And then what is keeping us from that? And what is helping, what are we already doing that's helping that? And what's keeping us from getting there? And it does it depersonalizes it. But then there's that question of what am I doing? That be, Because I think you know one of the things that we really stress in the book and that is so important is that every single person, whether you're in a leadership position or not, needs to become very self-aware of your behavior and how it's impacting others. And so what am I doing mm. is an important question for self-reflection mm. that is helping or hindering or damaging, right?
1: Mm. Which... Again, in my head, the way I'm seeing this is, you know, like a a staircase. And so that first step into this is that, okay, let's depersonalize it, let's get a compelling vision that that we can actually then put the top of the stairs. And then, okay, then if we're going to reach that, then this next bit is okay, now I do need to get a bit more introspective or a little bit more vulnerable, whatever the word might be. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that bit then about what am I doing and, and I guess the other one is what am I inadvertently doing because if I'm inadvertently doing it presumably I'm not aware I'm doing it so uh, in, again in my very quickly constructed staircase on that third step am I am I opening up to the room and am I, am I saying hey Manette, we've worked together for a fair while now um, uh, help me understand what do I sometimes do that you might I don't know I'm doing is is that a play is that a play in itself it it
0: can be a play and I I think that play can be very risky if you do it too early because if people have not established at least a baseline of I trust you you trust me that we have a certain level of safety in this group they're not going to tell the truth. I, I, I recently worked with a team and I had an example of this. We were not specifically talking about psychological safety, but we were talking about feedback. And feedback is certainly a part of like, do I actually give real feedback only if I feel safe? And can I receive it? That sort of thing. So at the end of this session with them, I asked everyone to give a piece of positive feedback and a piece of what I want to see you do more or less of after, after this session. And I could tell that some people were really willing to give a piece of feedback and others said, you know, I can't think of anything constructive. And you know what that's code for is like, I I have lots of things to say, but I don't dare say them out loud.
1: Just, just keep doing what you're doing. Exactly. I, (laughs) I
0: heard that. I heard that. And you know that what that is, that is code for. So if you, if you go straight to what am I doing that may be making you feel unsafe people probably won't answer that. But what I have found is that if you, if you like if I'm running a session and I'll talk a bit about some of the things that could hinder psychological safety before I ask that question. So I could say, for example, if you're in meetings and only two people do all of the talking, or if you get interrupted all the time, or if you don't listen well and you're getting distracted or you're getting defensive. So we'll definitely prompt people with a whole bunch of things that can be damaging to psychological safety. Then ask the question, what am I inadvertently doing? And you'll get people to be quite honest and become aware of things that they were not doing. You have to give them some material and some ideas before, because otherwise, to your point, they're like, I don't know. I'm, un- I'm unconscious. This is inadvertent. But if I give them that background of like, these are some of the many things that can hinder psychological safety, you'll get... I've heard had managers say, I realize I do all the talking in meetings, or I rush and I'm not listening, and they suddenly become quite vulnerable when asked that question, and and are quite honest. But you need to give them some material in advance so they can recognize what they're doing.
1: I think you know when when you sort of share some of those ideas, I think it also it really starts uncovering things that they almost seem quite common. I'll give you I'll give you an example from where I've said so that you know not interrupting. Um, I, I was asked to observe a meeting and what I noticed was not one single, and this is bizarre, in, in an hour's meeting, not one single person got to finish their sentence. Oh, God. And, but what was interesting about it was the reason they weren't being able to finish their sentences because lots of people were like, oh, oh yeah, I get that. Oh, or piling on, yeah. Piling on or making a joke. So there was lots of laughter. There was lots of feel-good stuff. But when I reflected back, I said, not one of you got to say what you needed to say. I think sometimes that's also a really interesting because, yeah, I'm sure you see this all the time. You know, there's those teams that say we really get on. And one of the reasons they really get on is that they never talk about the tough stuff. You know, they never actually bring up the tricky stuff. How, how have you, In your experience, how are you navigated talking to people about psychological safety when they actually think psychological safety is quite high because of that misunderstanding of what, what it is?
0: Oh, and it's so common, you know, that what you just described, it's really common. It's like, we get along great. We're so cohesive. We have so much fun together. And it's when you prompt questions like, what about in hard times? How do you behave in hard times? How do you handle setbacks and failures? Are they talked about? Do you talk about them or do you just move on and pretend nothing ever happened? How do you deal with conflict? So I think these kind of questions are really important. How often do you argue in a meeting and what are those arguments like? Are they painful and are they attacking or are they everyone's all in and we're just trying to get to the best idea? I think it's the idea of, again, what's possible. When you have psychological safety, you can have debate, you can have dissent, you can have challenge. And without it, you get to that, what I would say, niceness and politeness that, you know, we used to have this problem where I used to work. It was common common culture that we would have the meetings. Everyone was really nice to each other. You leave the room. There's the meeting after the meeting because people didn't want to say what they wanted. And it seems like everyone's getting along great. And I remember having a team like that. Like I inherited a team of people. They didn't all know each other really well. Everyone was really nice. They didn't say what they were thinking. And I had to, I had to mine for dissent. I had to find ways to get people to challenge and speak up. And I feel like I've learned a lot since then that I would have done differently. But, you know, even asking someone to play devil's advocate, which is one of the things we recommend is like, try that out because if you've never done it, it can get, it can unlock something that, oh, this is actually possible that we could disagree and that we could discuss an opposing viewpoint.
1: What, what, what is something that you would have done differently? Because I, I, we, we've got a few clients that are into to mind now where they've, they've inherited, they've, they've, they're living your, your, your experience where they've, they've inherited a team who have, I, I use the word when I'm talking to them, they've been conditioned to play in the game a certain way. You keep your head down or it gets shot off. And it takes a long time to learn to play a new game. <laughs> you know, it takes a long time to trust that you can play a new game. Given that you said you've been there and if you had your time again, you would do things differently. What's something that when you look back, you go, oh, if I, I wish I'd known this because X, Y, Z happened.
0: I think I myself was a little fearful of like, how do I approach? I didn't talk about it explicitly enough. What I wish I had done instead is say elephant in the room we never disagree about anything. We're playing really nice. And you know what? It's just okay for us not to agree about everything. Let's practice what that's like. Let's actually have a disagreement about this and put it on the table and practice some of these things that we never did. You know, I think that I, I was a little afraid because I didn't know how to maybe to control it or set it up for success. And so I was kind of, I would say, dancing around or skating around the perimeter of what the real issue was. And I think now I would have been much more direct about it. Like, this is not healthy. We are not the best team we could be. We would be so much better off if we could talk honestly in this room and that there were no after meetings. And, you know, we're not going to have after meetings. And can we all commit to that? And even if it's uncomfortable, I will go first. I'm going to say something uncomfortable right now. Right. I think I think that's what I would do differently now.
1: Because you do that differently now because even though you don't know how things would unfold, you feel that you have some frameworks, some strategies in place to, to be able to navigate how things unfold.
0: Exactly. I think so. I think I just have more tools in the toolbox. You know, have now yeah. I was I was in tech for thirty years. I didn't have a lot of training in, in this stuff. I was reading a lot. But now, you know, I've been a consultant for a few years. I've run a lot of workshops. I've met a lot of other consultants and seen what they've done. So I just have a better sense of like, oh, how you can facilitate things like this. And they're definitely great tools and techniques to use. And you know, I don't know if you use liberating structures. Have you heard of that site?
1: I haven't, known. There's
0: a wonderful site online. It's called Liberating Structures. And they basically offer facilitation techniques for all sorts of different situations. And I love using their their methods because it, it enables you to have some of these hard discussions or get everyone to speak up. And it's very nicely structured. And so I, I use some of those in my, in my consulting work. And I wish I had known about them when I was leading teams because I would have put them right into place. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, well, I'm going to put a link to Liberating Structures in the show notes, but of course, I'm also going to be putting a link to your book in the <laughs> show notes. So, what I thought would be useful here, because I want people to read the book, so we don't want to, we're not obviously going to unpack the whole book. But I'm interested if you know, there's people listening, and and we know from the feedback we get on the podcast and and with the clients we work with that this area is, it's, I reckon, it's one of the biggest things that that leaders are thinking about. So. If we think that we've we've spoken a little bit about that first one about you know being courageous in in communicating to us, so putting it out there, what am I missing? Mm-hmm. You know, like let let let's get the ball rolling with that. But what happens then, Minette, when you ask people that? I'm I'm wondering if we could sort of look at the different bit like what you said before. Maybe if we look at each of the other four plays and just give one little tidbit, one little one little I don't know idea that um, that people might be able to maybe not necessarily go and do straight away but it gives them something to hold on to that says okay I'm ready to I'm ready to dig into this and then they can go and grab your book and really really get get going with it but you know I asked the question and then obviously I need to be able to listen but tell me what tell me what you mean when we're really talking about listening rather than just waiting to speak.
0: Yes. So so you ask this question, what am I missing? And let's say you get a response and that response may be challenging, right? And so there are lots of aspects of listening. And as you know, we have a whole play. That's our play too, uh, is mastering the art of listening. So one of the first things is to really get curious about understanding and not try to formulate your response while the other person is talking. That's so tempting. We have a whole move on that. It's like the I forget exactly what we call it, but basically resisting the urge to to plan your response while you're listening. So to ask what we mean is staying really curious, listening to understand the other person, not to respond. Maybe you ask some clarifying questions. And especially if you're feeling like I'm on the defensive now, they just challenged me just asking some questions truly to understand. And I think a misconception that maybe we should clear up is that when you understand, it doesn't mean you agree. And I think some leaders are afraid that if I truly listen and I truly understand, then they're going to change my mind, right? And so maybe it's good. I I would say that's actually pretty damn good if someone challenges you and you get new information and you change your mind, that's a strength, not a weakness. But it doesn't mean that you have to agree. You can listen. You can hear someone who has a diametrically opposed viewpoint, and you can still hear them and and maintain your own point of view. And I think that's really important for people to understand that I can listen fully and I don't have to you know, move over to the other side completely
1: but that is so uncommon, right? Like if, if even around the dinner table or around the, around the, the you know, the politician's table, it is so, it's that, that idea that we can hold two ideas at once is so uncommon. And you could ma- maybe make a case of you know, the root cause of a lot of drama in our world. So
0: it really is. I was just listening to a whole podcast about polarization, uh, the power of us podcast. And it is, it is so hard for us. And yet I, I'm just going to double down on it because I think it's so important that not only in the workplace, but in our societies that we try, even if it's really hard. And I on, I admit it's hard for me to listen to people I totally disagree with. And mm-hmm. yet, if I can at least try to hear where they're coming from, what I think it does is that it's, makes people seem human when we listen to them and we understand their experiences it takes them away from being you know an in- enemy in politics or in the workplace and ad- an adversary and instead a fellow human being who's trying to get something done and I think that's the part that's so important.
1: You mentioned this before but that that third play you know the, be, the ability to um, manage our reactions you know whether I'm not sure entirely how you frame this whether this is partly emotional intelligence partly um you know having a a real practical framework that you can work through you know in in order to think before we respond but talk to me about because i'll I'll give you the the way we set this up Mm. in in our work is we we talk about um psychological safety isn't built in workshops it's built in the moments and it's particularly the moment after someone shares with you an idea a question a mistake you know or a concern and so being able to have that a bit you know and, and because I do a lot of work in sport I, tr- I, I kind of equate that with the clutch moments in sport like these are the high stakes moments right here when somebody comes to you and says hey Dan you know I've, I've made a mistake here or hey Dan I've got a concern about how we're going here my reaction in that moment's the equivalent of taking a game-winning shot in a in a in a in a football match you know because how I handle that situation will determine in my in the way we frame it and I'd be curious to get your your take on this that determines whether we build a little you know a a veneer of varnish over the top to strengthen it or we or we sand the veneer of varnish off to weaken it you know and or maybe just chop the wood (laughs) you know um, I'm curious that idea of being built in the moments how does that sit with you in the in in the work that you've done it
0: completely resonates it's almost like we say it's like it's one it happens one interaction and in one conversation at a time it's like every mm-hmm. interaction can build psychological safety or damage it and it is in those moments especially when we are feeling defensive so you alluded to the third the third play which is all about managing our reactions and i think this honestly this was something i had to learn myself in the workplace, I would get, as we all do, we get instinctively defensive when we feel challenged and attacked. And our instinctive reaction is usually not a good one. And it is usually not going to increase psychological safety. So if you challenge me and say, Manette, that's a terrible idea, I'll probably say, well, what about your terrible idea, Dan? You know, and we're gonna just get into this and it's not gonna be very productive, right? But what, honestly, I would-
1: We'll edit edit that out if that happens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that will let it out. But in real life, you don't get to edit it out, and the damage has been done. Exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have been on the receiving and I and you know, this is a story I've told before, but it was so awful in the moment. I was in a big, big meeting with a bunch of my peers. The leader of the organization was asked having a sort of a town hall ask-me-anything question, and I asked a somewhat challenging question that I thought was a fair question. And I got slammed. I got humiliated. I got told to basically shut up and do not ask that question. And what happened was, it's very interesting because, first of all, I was humiliated. That, I won't even say embarrassed. I was humiliated. My face was red. I felt like I, my career is over. This is an awful moment. But it wasn't just me who reacted to that. It was everyone who witnessed it. And I recently met someone. This is like four years ago that this happened. I recently met someone who was in that room and we never talked about what happened and she told me you know that moment actually changed how i interacted with that person because i was so terrified of the same thing happening to me so basically that was breaking psychological safety for the entire room and no one's going to believe again that you can ask that person a question
1: hmm. let's say i respond positively in that moment so let's say for example let's say that my the leader in that instance had gone on oh, the Thank you for bringing that question up. It's a great question, even if they don't have an answer for it, yes. you know. But I'm going to go away and think about it. Is the positive impact of a response like that equal to the negative response of you know a less ideal <laughs> response? You, you know what I mean? Like, are, are all deposits equal, or do you have to make more deposits in the positive? <laughs> then the impact that one negative will have. I've really
0: mangled that question. I totally know what you mean. I totally know what you mean. And I think you're onto something in that, the way I would answer that. And I believe I've seen something around this from a psychologist that you need many more positive things to outweigh the negative. The negative ones, we have that negativity bias, right? We remember negative experiences. So that negative, you know, lashing out in a meeting is going to stick with us longer than Thank you so much for that question. I really want to get to the bottom. But you need about, I think it was five. I can't remember if the study said five to one, positive to negative, something like that. So I think those negatives really do stick with us, unfortunately. So you want to try to avoid them. And you know, that's the the way you phrased it is exactly what I, I've replayed that. And I've even workshopped that of like, how might that have gone differently? And it would have been, okay, hold on. I'm getting defensive. Manette just asked me a really hard question. Pause for a second. And then say thank you so much. I don't have a great answer. Can can I get back to you on that? I appreciate mm. it. And that's exactly yeah. how everyone would have then asked the next hard question because they realized it was okay to do so.
1: And I think that in itself then raises the challenge for the leaders because it put it, again it goes back to that idea you were talking about before where you know we put out for questions or or concerns or what do you think we we don't know how it's going to play out. Yes. Um, so having, uh, even having that, that go-to line ready to go. Exactly. That buys you time is, is a tech, is a skill, right? It's a technique. It's that teachable. It see so yeah.
0: much of this is really practical stuff that it feels scary. Like, how am I going to manage my defensiveness? Well, really, you just have to recognize it's happening. So that's, yeah. that's just paying attention. Like my face gets red. Everyone has some kind of a physical reaction. My heart races or whatever it is. Stop, pause, say, thank you. Like that's actually learnable and practice something. I mean, obviously, you don't get it right every time, but if you pr- over time as you practice that, saying thank you, pausing and saying thank you, and then you can come back with "I don't have an answer" or maybe someone yeah. else in the room has an answer. But I think those skills are really, really learnable.
1: And and the other thing that sprung to mind when you were talking about the the ratio and whether you know whatever the number <laughs> yeah. is, it, I think that's less important than what we what we know is it's a lot more positive than, than <laughs> yes. negative that we need. That also then implies that this takes probably a lot longer than you think it's going to take. You know, to build a team which is really now able to share with candor and really be able to talk about the stuff that matters. Ideally, it would be good if we could just do a workshop or just hey, just listen to this podcast with Manette and Dan and, and <laughs> you're and we'll done. Be sweet. Yeah. yeah, you're done. But it takes a probably it takes a, a lot of time, effort. um uh, Probably, I'd imagine a lot of repetition, a lot of reminding, a lot of setting up the norms. How do you? help leaders um, guard against the, oh, it's, it's just not worth it, it's just not working, you know, it's, it's just th- there's something wrong with me now or I'm just not doing it right. How do you help leaders when you're coaching them realize that, you know, we thought it was going to take this long or you thought it was going to take this long, it's actually going to take a bit longer and then even when you get there, it's going to take longer again and it's an never – in fact, you're never going to get there. Yes, <laughs> it's there probably is something no that constantly there constantly yeah, there's no there. Yeah, so how do you help people guard against that? Because typically, most leaders are quite, this is a huge generalization, but they kind of like to know there's an end in sight with projects, for example. They yeah. like to know the timelines. They like to know ROI. You know, um, how, how do you help them navigate that space?
0: I am, I know this is hard, but I am trying to get all the leaders that I work with to think about leadership differently because it is Constant and and it takes consistency and that's not linear, right? It's not linear. There's not just like I just get better, my team gets better. There'll be ups and downs, and you know our subtitle is lead more powerfully by being more human, remembering that we're human and that we're going to make mistakes and we're going to have those moments where we aren't perfect, and we can move on from them. We can apologize. We can genuinely do better and people will appreciate that. And I think that it's just understanding that there is no perfection. There's no end state where it's all perfect. And the other thing is, is that the workplace is so constantly evolving and our teams are not static. So you may have a team of 10 and then one person leaves and two new people come in. And it's not that you're starting at zero, but you now have a new team makeup, right? And so you're always evolving and trying to bring people into the mix. And so there is no... You know, there's no perfection and there's no end state and little things can make a big difference. And so don't try to do everything at once and 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 take the wins where you can get them and show the gratitude and, and celebrate that things are better than they were.
1: Better than they were, but not perfect. And I like that framing of, you know, perfection is probably not, it's not there. There's no there there. Yeah. So that I think that leads us nicely to the idea of play four, whereas if, well, if there's not, if I'm not going to get it right all the time, I'm going to have to get better with failure and setbacks and you know that's uh, it's a very noble aim Manette, <laughs> in, in the instagram world of pithy quotes and how you know failure is a wonderful opportunity to learn but no one really likes it do they so talk to me a little bit about how we can go about um putting failure as it's, it's actually probably part of our work as opposed to proof our work isn't working
0: Exactly. Honestly, Caroline has helped me with this a lot because she's a scientist. You know, she has a PhD in human genetics and she says, we all need to think more like scientists because you go into the lab, you try something, you know, you're going to fail along the way. That's part of learning. It's part of innovation. It's part of science. And if we can apply that mindset to the workplace that there's going to be no innovation without some setbacks and failures along the way, There just aren't. If you you if you study innovation, there's failure along the way, and that we should get better at just making it less scary. We should destigmatize it and make it less scary to talk about it, and make it part of our regular meetings. There we talk about things that went well, and we talk about things that didn't. And the more we can do that, the more we can talk about the small things that went badly, as opposed to like hiding everything, pretending everything's good, and then having a massive failure. Because a lot of these smaller failures that we, if we surface them and learn from them, it will prevent a very large failure later. And even a large failure sometimes happens. But I mean, I witnessed uh, examples of this in the tech industry, like for example, with a software release where the whole team knew that this release was not ready for the public, but it was way too risky to be signaling that along the way. And instead, there was this big disaster. I, I can't remember if they actually shipped that one or not, but, you know, all the rework that was required as a result of it, it could have been averted if people had said early on, we need to we need to re-architect this, we need to rethink yeah. this. So I, I love the idea of being more like a scientist. And I also really love something from the software industry, which is the idea of the blameless postmortem, that after this, this came out of basically cloud software companies where you have an outage right? And you go back afterwards and say, what happened? How did we get there? What are we going to do differently? And the idea is that it's blameless. There's no finger pointing. It's really about learning and doing better in the future. And I think it can be applied. We have that as one of our moves in the book. It can be applied to any industry. It's not, it doesn't have to be a technical problem, but to basically say, what went wrong? Let's get really curious about this. Let's talk about it openly without humiliating anyone. And we are going to learn what we're going to change going forward. So, It's, it's not, honestly, it's not very commonplace in many work settings. And so it's, it's a big adjustment. But you know, the first thing to do is just introduce in a team, like in a weekly meeting, like, what went well this week? What went badly? What, what mistakes happened? What failures? And it can start with small ones. I think that's the idea. Start with it not being so scary to talk about. You know, one, another place where I've seen this done really regularly and well is designers. Designers do design critiques yep. all the time and they're very used to it. So it's just part of their training as a designer. You're going to have a critique on everything you do. I wish we could get better at that every in every aspect of work so it's not so scary and threatening.
1: I, I've just read um, The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle and he talks about um, Pixar they have a, a thing called the Brains Trust. I read
0: about that. Yes, I read that book. Yeah, yeah.
1: where essentially, you know, you so and I, I, it wouldn't be dissimilar to yourself. You know, you write a chapter of the book and then you give it to Carolyn for feedback or whatever. They they spend <laughs> months on on I don't know thirty seconds worth of animation and then they know that they take it to the Brains Trust and they know it's just going to be pulled apart. Not because it's a personal criticism, but it's just in the spirit of we want this to be the best exactly you know production possible um yeah but th- th- i think you, yeah that idea of creativeness designers i think that yeah they, they have to embrace it they understand they have to embrace it to to be the best version of themselves
0: yeah yeah and i've rarely I, I remember a long time ago early in my career i was in a team that had a very high level of psychological safety and we were able to do that but it was the exception to in my whole career that was very rare yeah, yeah.
1: So, if it's really rare, obviously, you know, um, any any help we can give people to to make it less rare in their teams, the book is obviously going to be that first the first port of call for them. But there's one last play that I want to talk with you about, and it may be you know it might be related to what we spoke about before in terms of liberating structures. But how do we make our meetings better? How do we make our time together um, better?
0: Yeah, and we did, we did really save that chapter for last. It's a it's a really big topic, obviously, and other people have written about it, and there's there's actually a lot online of how to make do better meetings. But from our point of view, like the most important thing is that you make it safe to hear all the voices, you make it welcoming to hear all the voices, and you you ask, you deliberately ask for opposing viewpoints and dissent. And what we we have sort of a a cute thing we call the inclusion booster, but what we're basically saying is appoint someone to be a facilitator and take turns doing it. Because when you facilitate a meeting, first of all, you observe all the dynamics that are there. Uh, so it helps everyone become more aware. But it also, like you can actually put a rule in, for example, no one speaks twice until everyone speaks once. You can, you can figure out how do you want to do turn taking? How do you want to handle interruptions? How do you want to handle getting different viewpoints? How do you bring in the quiet voices? So those are like some of the techniques that we, we mention in the book. But the most important thing is that you commit to consciously creating inclusive meetings where everyone can participate. And that may mean sending reading material in advance, for example, You know, because a lot of people need to process offline. And we need to not like, because what we usually do is we bias towards the extroverts in the meeting, the extroverts who think out loud and are like quick on their feet. And we think they're the smartest people, whereas the smartest person probably needs to go digest this think of their ideas quietly, and then come in with them. And I, I learned that myself. I didn't really understand how different kinds of people worked until I, I started working with more introverted people or people who you know, have different processing methods in their brain. And that is really important. It's really important. So we think that changing your meetings can change your corporate culture or your team culture. And it's a great place to start practicing some of these techniques.
1: A lot of meetings... Know, needn't be meetings in exactly. many cases, you know, because uh, say there's one or two people just downloading a load of information, get, uh, uh, and you've just brought to mind one one example where I've heard seen a leader. You know, if we go back to that question, of what's one thing I inadvertently do? Um, this particular leader, if they sent an agenda, if they sent an agenda for a meeting, it would only ever be on the day. Yeah. Or even in the hour leading up to the meeting, which meant people in the you know you just you just gave me the exact opposite. Here's here's not only the agenda, but here's some reading material, here's some food for thought. You know, just just that increases psychological safety. Whereas if I'm walking in blind,
0: right,
1: that's really going to limit inadvertently because I'm not doing that because I want to close people down. I'm doing that because I'm busy. Yes, I'm doing that because I'm you know I'm I'm actually having one-on-one meetings over here, or I'm this, or I'm that. I'm not. I'm not deliberately trying to shut down meetings or shut down voice, but inadvertently I am because I'm not doing something which is quite actually practical and easy to deal with, but... So this point hasn't come up for me.
0: Yeah, it's so important. And, and again, I I didn't do this well a lot of the time because I thought everyone would just be fine just being off the cuff. But I'll, I'll tell you how I really became aware of this. I had a guy in my team who was very, very smart, very, very quiet, very introverted. And we were doing a brainstorming session one day where everyone was writing down their ideas on Post-its and putting them up on the board. And he was generating just this uncanny number of ideas. And I said to him afterwards, wow, you are the most creative. And he said, I wish you had given me this topic before, because if I had had time to think about this at home alone, I would have had such better ideas because I don't think quickly on my feet. Like, okay, lesson learned, lesson learned. And then we all lose out because this person would have had a lot more to contribute if he'd had some time to prepare.
1: But to your eyes, it looked like he already had contributed a lot. So again, that's a really interesting, you see what you think, you see (laughs) through my lens and not through his lens, right? yeah, but in actual fact, there's a whole heap of other un- untapped ideas. stuff going on. Yeah. yeah.
0: So yeah, the the meetings don't all you know, per- give people time to prepare or don't have a meeting. Have some a- asynchronous way to share information. And I, you know, I'm a former tech writer, so I believe in writing things down. I think we don't write things down enough because that's a, again, like we make decisions and we don't even record them. So write things down. Let people comment on them, and then maybe you have a confer- you have a meeting when people have had time to digest some material.
1: I mean, I've, I've loved this conversation and I've loved the practical um, nature of, of your thinking and, and the, the fact that it's, you know, it's grounded in every sense. It's It, it happens in teams, it happens in your work and, and you're speaking from from experience of doing this. Um, if listeners have been, you know, equally engaged with this and, and want to connect with you and, and Carolyn and uh, I guess get the book, what, what's the best way that they can go about connecting with you and and, and digging into more of your work.
0: Yeah, so they can go to our website. We actually have some free materials there so it's the psychological safety playbook.com and our email is on there and you can contact us. but we're also on LinkedIn, both Carolyn Helbig and Manette Norman. we love to connect with people. We love to know like what's working, what you're struggling with, what can we help with, what might we collaborate on? So yeah, on LinkedIn or on the dot playbook.com website.
1: Fantastic. I'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes. But um, thank you so much for staying up late in the States there for, uh, for this conversation. And um, I hope that when you finally do meet uh, Carolyn face to face, you get on just as well I, in the real world. I have
0: no doubt. And this was a really fun conversation, Dan. So thank you so much.
1: As I mentioned, all the links to learn more about Manette and her work and get a copy of the Psychological Safety Playbook, all those links are in the show notes. Also, if you are interested in the work that we do here at Cut Through Coaching or perhaps you'd like to suggest a question or suggest a guest, for an upcoming episode of the podcast, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page. Please also don't forget to like the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review for the podcast because doing these small actions really makes a big difference in the way our podcast gets shared. Until our next episode, thank you so much for joining us. Take care and take it easy.